Hey, this is Joe from Watershed, and you're listening to the Dig Me Out Podcast. This week on Dig Me Out, Tim and Jay review No Pocky for Kitty by Super Chunk. Hello and welcome to another episode of Dig Me Out. I'm your host, Tim Manichi, and joining me once again, my co-host, Mr. Jason Ziak. Yes. I said I it with can. authority. I know. I noticed I noticed the last episode you did that. It's it's you like are adding extra um syllables to my name, I think. Well, I only have two to play with, so sometimes I have to throw some extra ones in to make it more interesting. <laughs> I got three in mind, so I need to pump yours up to get up, you know, extend it out a little bit. Pull on the Z a little bit. Okay. Just set that out. Z. Okay. Like I'm the Cleveland Cavaliers announcer from the 1980s. Exactly. Brad Doherty. <laughs> uh, only the people in the greater Cleveland area will appreciate that one. Uh, so we have a. Not only do we have a, a suggestion from a listener, we have the listener. Joining us tonight uh, from Atlanta, Georgia, from Hotlanta, calling in on the Skype from the This Is The Sound podcast, Kim Ware is joining us. Welcome to the show, Kim. Hey, thanks. So how hot is it in Hotlanta? It's been really hot. I think 90s pretty consistently. Really. Um, 90s is, that's nothing. Nineties. Yeah. It's ninety here now, and it seems like like the winter, <laughs> doesn't it? Yeah. Like I, I was like driving home tonight, and I had I was like, oh, I'll put the windows down. It's only ninety. We, we went through like two weeks of it being a hundred here, so yeah, nineties nothing. It was like the oh. Dust Bowl. <laughs> nice. So your suggestion was Super Chunk, and we picked the album. We settled on the album. I think you had a couple of suggestions, but we settled on the album. Uh, no Pocky for Kitty. Is that, is that how you say it? Is it No Pocky or No Pucky? Yeah. Or? I think it's Pocky. Like, Pocky. Yeah. I don't think that's a real word. I think they made that word up. I is thought that, it was like, is it like a candy or something? Maybe it is. Hmm. I don't know. I, I, I knew at one point, because I think at first I just thought, I thought it was Pocket, you know, because I wasn't paying close attention. And then when I realized what it was, I was like, oh, what's that? That was long ago, so I don't remember. It is a Japanese candy. Did you just yeah. Google that too? Oh, <laughs> it's like a, what does it look like? It's kind of like a pretzel stick, maybe kind of thing, and it's coated in chocolate. Oh, okay. I like chocolate covered pretzels. Yeah, that works out. Yeah, you wouldn't want to feed that to your cat. No. No. <laughs> no, chocolate would make them sick. Right. No pocky for kitty. <laughs> no, it makes perfect sense. <laughs> So, uh, you have a background that goes beyond just being um, a fan, Kim. Can you talk a little bit about North Carolina and Wilmington? Because when we spoke uh, over email, you had mentioned you have sort of a history there. I do, yeah. I um, Well, I grew up in a really small town, but then I went to Wilmington um, to college at UNC Wilmington. So, I moved there to go to school in 1990. So, I spent all the 90s in Wilmington. Um, up until I moved here to Atlanta in 2004. And um, so just was really ingrained in that whole, like, North Carolina indie rock scene. Um, I was a huge fan of it. And being playing in bands in Wilmington, that was, like, they were sort of our, like, role models. And we really just, like, aspired to be, like, any successful Chapel Hill band, really. It, Wilmington was sort of, like... The ugly like stepchildren kind of like we didn't get much cred at all um in that scene in the 90s um so anybody in chapel hill that played in a band was like super cool to us <laughs> <laughs> how far away are the two cities from each other i mean only like about two and a half hours or so okay they seem a lot further away because wilmington's on the coast and we didn't get a lot of bands like coming through because you don't go through Wilmington to go anywhere. Mm-hmm. 
So we, I think we, you know, we missed out on a lot of a lot of the the cool music coming through in the '90s. A lot of times we would go to like Chapel Hill or something to see a show, um, mm-hmm. because it was just a few hours away, and it was on the coast, and it's like a beautiful place. You know, occasionally mm-hmm. some of the Chapel Hill bands would come play in Wilmington from time to time. Mm-hmm. Uh, Wilmington is also where they film Eastbound and Down. In case anybody was, uh, oh anybody's my a God. fan out there. Yes. Yeah. And they filmed One Tree Hill and Dawson's Creek. I was in Dawson's Creek the first episode. I was an extra. So no yeah, they way. Of- yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, wow. So that's like, uh, that's we got a celebrity on with us. <laughs> just not a podcaster. The back of my head. Yeah. <laughs> hey, that's all right. If, you, if you're on there, then you get to say, well, you know, I was in an episode of One Tree Hill. It's in my mm-hmm. IMDb page. And, uh, um, so you'd mentioned some bands down there that we weren't familiar with because Jay and I, although we have some knowledge of bands from the nineties, um, most of them were in the Seattle, Chicago, mm-hmm. uh, Boston, some of those bigger cities. Can you talk a little bit about some of the bands that were in Wilmington? And, and I think you mentioned, uh, one in particular, had some connections to like the cassette trading scene yeah um that was kenyatta sullivan and he had a band called pandora's lunchbox um you can look him up um kenyatta k-e-n-y-a-t-a sullivan but and you can probably find lots of stuff about him he's just ridiculously talented he's an amazing songwriter and front person and um they were one of those bands that um the store, according to the stories I always heard, they like turned down a lot of record de- deals because they just wanted to stay like totally DIY, and um, they were amazing. And I think um, if any band from Wilmington from that time period maybe like could have hit it big, um, they definitely were one of them. Um, but gosh, there were so many great bands. Then um, Brickbat is another really awesome band from that same time period like the early 90s. It's funny that you mentioned the band turning down a deal because basically that's the same story as Superchunk mm-hmm. that we're going to be talking about. They they had an opportunity to sign with majors and they also turned it down so that they could stay independent, um, which was not something that a lot of bands, even the bands that people think of as being, you know, the indie rock superstars, you know, Sonic Youth signed a Geffen and... You know, a lot of bigger bands, you know, Jawbox signed to, I don't remember what the, what label they signed to, but, you know, a lot of bigger bands ended up signing that were indie rock underground heroes. Mm-hmm. And it's it's few and far between that you get the Super Chunks and the Fugazis and, and those sorts of bands that actually end up staying independent, for better or worse. Yeah, but yeah, and Kenyatta, he did, you mentioned like the cassette underground thing. He was really big into that. He did... um he would like trade tapes with people kind of like you know pen pals sort of and send them his music they'd send him theirs and he ended up putting out um a lot of different like cassette compilations back in the day with people like um brett daniel from spoon um connor oberst when he was god i mean he was probably like nine then or something like <laughs> literally he was like really really young and like kenyatta had something of his on one it like he just all these bands before anyone knew who they were. Um, mm. And you ought to know who they were. So it's pretty cool. Yeah, that's a, that's part of the 90s that I don't think a lot of people are aware of is that underground taping culture that took place. And it was in a lot of the zines. Yeah. So the, the handmade zines that were going around at the time. But it, just below sort of the indie rock, alternative college rock, scene that was exploding there was this very diy very stripped down even like people think of like guided by voices and pavement and those bands are being diy no 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 this is even more diy right. this is like you get a boom box and you strum your acoustic guitar and that's it yeah and you're and you're trading that with somebody like you said you know across the country mm-hmm. but that was not super chunk no <laughs> i'm going to transition very um, awkwardly into this <laughs> band super chunk were I think, I think they're probably mislabeled as being sort of low Y or DIY because of the fact that they've stuck on their own. But 
in checking out this album, I didn't find them to be as DIY or, or lo-fi as I thought they were. Maybe that was because I really wasn't familiar, I realized, with this band. Jay, were you familiar with Super Chunk other than maybe a song or two? Uh, yeah, I was, but in a weird way. I, I've recently gotten into them. I really um, got into the, the latest album, Majesty's Dreading, which came out in 2010. Mm-hmm. And then I've been going back and sort of digging into the, the catalog since then. I mean, obviously, you know, in the 90s, I was I had heard some things. And we had some friends, I think, that, have, that were fans of the band. And, you know, they were just one of those bands that were sort of there. And you'd hear bits and pieces, but nothing really, you know... I guess I never really spent that much time with them until recently. When did you first stumble upon Super Chunk? Was there a, a particular album, Kim, that you were like, holy crap, what is this? Or was it gradual, your appreciation for Super Chunk back in the day? No, it was a, it was this album. It was the No Pocky album was my introduction to them. Excellent. Um, yeah, and I remember, like, I remember it. I remember first hearing it and it was a couple years after it was released um it was it was either in it may have been the summer of 93 um or i think the summer of 94 but yeah it was a couple years after that i heard it and just instantly loved it well this would be a good time since we're throwing around dates to get to the history of the band history of the band So, for those of you not familiar, and who didn't hear the beginning of the podcast, Superchunk are from Chapel Hill, North Carolina. They were formed in 1989 by, I'm going to mess up the last name here, Mac McCoggan. Is that how I say it? Do you know, Kim, if that's how you say it? I think it's like McCon. I'm I'm not positive, though. That's not our strong point on the show, is pronunciation of last (laughs) names. You didn't, you didn't slaughter it. You got pretty... I got it's got to be one of the two. I'm just going to call him Mac from now on, so that's going to make <laughs> it easier. He was on guitar and vocals, or is on guitar and vocals. Laura Balance on bass, Chuck Garrison on drums, and Jason McCook on guitar. Around the same time, uh, Mac and Laura formed Merge Records, which will become uh, important later. So initially the band was named Chunk, after Chuck Garrison, because Chuck Garrison's name was misspelled in the phone book as Chunk. So they released one single as Chunk, and then they found out there was a jazz band in New York with the same name, so they added Super to the beginning and then became Super Chunk, and they released their first single, uh, Slack Motherfucker, excuse me, everybody, but that's what the song's called, uh, as Super Chunk in 1989 on their own album, or own label, Merge, the first Full-length album was released in September of 1990 on Matador Records. After that, uh, Jason McCook left the band and was replaced by Jim Wilbur. The band got into a bidding war with several major labels, but decided to stay with Matador. Garrison left the band and was replaced by John Worcester, and they recorded their second album, which we're reviewing, No Pocky for Kitty, which was released in 1991 on Matador. Now, that's the last album that they released on Matador. Excuse me, that's not true. The next one is. Uh, but they started releasing material, more material on Merge in uh, 1991. Also, the first singles compilation came out called Tossing Seeds. The last album for Matador came out in February of 93 called On the Mouth, and that was reproduced by John Rees of rocket from the crypt the first album for merge came out in 94 that was foolish followed by the next year here here's where the strings come in in 1995 september the second singles compilation incidental music came out in 1995 also in march on merge 97 indoor living released on merge come pick me up august of 99 that was co-produced by jim o'rourke who has worked with Sonic Youth and Wilco. Eighth album, Here's to Shutting Up, released September of 2001. Their third singles compilation, Cup of Sam, was released in 2003. And there was a a lull for nine years between album releases. And then, as Jay mentioned, in 2010, Magistry... I'm going to back that up. 
Majesty Strutting. Sorry, I had too many beers. <laughs> <laughs> Majesty Strutting. I don't know why I can't say Magistry. Majesty. It's a it's a hard album title to say. It is. It's like the I rural juror. I don't know if you said shredding. Did you say that? I don't know if you said that right either. Shredding. Shredding. Magi- okay. Once I say the J, it like completely screws it up for magistry. I want to say magistry. And there's no R there. I think I'm having a stroke. Hold on. I think I stumbled over it when I had to say it too. Bumblebee, bumblebee, bumblebee. All right. Messing up the lips. Majesty. It's, how do you say majesty? Majesty. Maj- majesty shredding. There you go. That sucks. <laughs> Twelve times a charm. Oh my god, that's, <laughs> that is awful. Also released were the Clambake series live volumes one and two in two thousand two, and volume three in two thousand three. So <laughs> that was the history of the band, which was brought to you by us. However, if you would like to support the podcast and become the sponsor of the history of the band you can make a donation or buy a t-shirt through our website at digmeoutpodcast.com let's get to facebook feedback we got a bunch of likes for this album when we put it up on facebook we also got some uh, comments most of them revolving around that we shouldn't have (laughs) picked this album uh not really but most of the people were excited we were doing this but almost all of them david gorgos Sean Michael Foster, Chip Midnight, all said Foolish is their favorite record. Which does not necessarily mean that this is not their favorite record. Well, I guess it means it's not their, it's that they don't like this album, but they just they like Foolish more than this record. Which, you know, teach his own. That's okay. I haven't listened to Foolish yet, so I can't uh, speak on that. So maybe it'll become my favorite record. One thing I got to mention before we get to the review is I mentioned that John Reese worked on one of their albums. I mentioned that Jim O'Rourke worked on one of their records. On this album, although he's not credited, Mr. Steve Albini is responsible for the production and recording of this record. And it's actually an interesting story. The band was on, on tour and they stopped in Chicago for three days that they had a break. And they knocked this album out over three days between 6 p.m. and 6 a.m. When they had a studio lockout. Yeah. So they worked 12 hours a day over three days, and they got this album done. TCB. Taking care of business. Taking care of business is right. (laughs) So that's no nonsense. I I mean, they pumped out in the 90s, you know, quite a few albums. So this was a band that worked fast. It wasn't until some of the later albums where they started adding some more, you know, instrumentation with strings and, and keyboards and whatnot. So, so is he considered the producer, the engineer, or what, what is his credit? Well, he doesn't take a specific credit, okay. but it's he's basically referred to as the producer and, and recorder of okay. the album. So he sat at the board, recorded the band. I don't know if he was involved in. Well, you know, they recorded it so fast. I'm not sure he had time to produce it. I mean, I guess he produced it in the sense that he produced a recording out of off of a tape. Sure. Yeah, that's that's about all you can. I mean, it took thirty six hours to do this thing. So. Right, right, right. I don't think um, they were rewriting parts, and. <laughs> which actually, when I think back to our studio time, makes me um, a little wanna bit puke? angry. Yeah, it makes me want to puke. <laughs> to be honest. Yeah. So let's get into the record. Uh, no pocky for Kitty. Named after a Japanese candy that kittens are not allowed to eat. And I was not familiar. I familiarized myself. But I'm not going to go first. Jay? Yeah? I'm not going to start with you. I'm going to start with Kim because Kim is our guest. And that's the uh, play thing to do. Kim, um, is this an album that you listen to often? Or is this an album that you hadn't picked up in a while? And... When you're listening to it with a critical ear, does that change anything? Yeah, I don't listen to it that often anymore. I used to listen to it a lot, um, like the first few years after I'd heard it. When I listen to Super Chunk now, I mean, I tend to, you know, just kind of like go to iTunes and listen to all everything I have by them, just kind of on shuffle. 
Mm-hmm. So um, I don't. I wouldn't say this is my go-to album for Super Chunk, but I don't. I don't know that I have one. Um, if I did, it would probably be shutting up, actually. But um, yeah, I don't know that I'll listen. Well, I'm, I'm sure I'll listen to it very differently, actually, than I used to. Um, gosh, twenty some years ago, just because of everything that I've listened to since then. Um, Part of the reason this album was so special to me without going into tons of like background and history and boring stuff was that, I mean, it was, it was kind of like my gateway album. Hmm. And at the time it was like, it was like nothing else I was listening to. So it just opened my mind to so much new music. And that's, that's why it holds such a special place in my heart. This was your Um, marijuana to (laughs) getting into harder drugs. Yeah. Mm Mm-hmm. I would definitely say so. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. So yeah, I mean, I you know, I bring different experiences to it now when I listen to it and all that. And I mean, it's I tend to prefer. Um, I mean, it's a lot more punky than most stuff that I listen to now. And I, I like, you know, once once the strings came in, I, I like that super chunk. Um, I think probably a little better than this one. But like I said, this one is just so special to me because it's the first super chunk album I ever heard, and it just opened my eyes to so much great music coming from that area. You, you mentioned something there, and I, I want to kick this over to you, Jay. You said punky. And when I had listened to the Super Chunk, the later stuff, I never got that. But listening to this album, I hear a lot more of a punk influence than I ever really expected. Jay, did you feel that? That from compared <clears throat> to, say, Majesty... Majesty. Majesty. <laughs> majesty Shredding that that album is a bit more on the power pop or straight up rock side than this is compared to the punk attitude that some of these songs have. Yeah. I think that that album's a good primer um, for me because um, it, it was that out. Al- the majesty shredding was the gateway for me from, you know, I, I, my background's a little bit more of like, you know, the classic rock, hard rock, melodic rock kind of thing. So that album is like a, to me, is a really refined version of the power pop version of the uh, power punk version of the band. So it kind of, you can understand like what they're doing from a melodic standpoint when you listen to the newest record. So <clears throat> it was a really good segue for me to get into this record and be able to um, really kind of cut through the abrasive guitars and sort of the punk the speed, some of the songs are pretty fast and sort of just cut through the punk aesthetic and really hear the melody and the, and the quality of the songwriting. Um, if I hadn't heard that album and had spent so much time with the newest album, I, it may have been a little bit more difficult for me to sort of, my ears wouldn't have been tuned to what they were doing um, on this record. So, I mean, there's definitely a punk attitude in some of the songs. Personally, I like the stuff that where they slow down a little bit and um, they let things open up and they let the melodies come out. Um, there's a little bit of a sense of at times the vocal being buried and maybe that's on purpose potentially. I'm not quite sure. Like I think we see that a lot with young, like younger bands or bands that aren't necessarily like confident in their vocal to sort of bury it, you know, behind a guitar and there's moments in this album where it does get a little bit buried and it becomes hard to kind of pull that melody out mm-hmm. but like I said, because i was familiar with sort of the the style of how they write and how the vocals usually sound i'm kind of i felt like i was able to kind of pull that pull that out you know as i heard as i heard it so that 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 really helped me kind of decipher where they were coming from in terms of this record and it's sort of interesting to uh you know i discover a band that way like go backwards in the chronology instead of forward, which it sounds like <laughs> Kim and I are sort of on a opposite journeys with this band. I'm starting from one end and she's sort of starting at the other. And, um, but both coming from, you know, this kind of being a segue in, into what this band is doing, for, you know, so that's, that's kind of interesting. It's interesting that you mentioned the slower tunes because I felt like a tower is a good example that you get the first three songs and they're all pretty manic energy and and a lot of they're not punk in the whatever sense of people have an idea of punk but they have that drive to mm-hmm. them 
So then you get to track four, Tower, and it almost sounds like if you if you take Max vocals out of that, it could be like a grunt truck or a Nirvana song, early Nirvana. Like I'm thinking like Bleach or Incesticide. Like it has that like minor key, dirty yeah. sound to it. was sort of surprising to me i wasn't expecting them to get like that sort of dark with the music it worked on that song there were a couple other ones where the slower stuff didn't necessarily work as well for me but they jumped so fast back into a, a faster up tempo song that it didn't really matter i mean this, this album was like 34 minutes i mean it, it goes by i think i listened to it like eight times today because it was just like it would be over i'd be like holy crap the album's over already and i would just start it right up over again Right, right, and I and I don't mean like slower. Like I would, Cast Iron isn't a slow song. It's probably my favorite song on the record, but it does. Um, at least like in the verse opens up, they do this really cool um, approach to dynamics in terms of how to how to construct a verse where you can sing over it, but it's not just like muted chords. You know, like that became very popular in the nineties. Obviously, like you know the chorus, you unmute the chords and you just hit you know kick in the distortion and play the full chord out and then in the verse you mute it down and turn the distortion off and you know that's been used a billion times that song is a really good example of like how they're able to you know provide a bed for a verse a melodic verse but still do something that's really interesting and dynamic and then kind of pick up into this really cool uh progression for the chorus um and that that's this kind of maybe maybe slowing down isn't the best um, way to describe it, it. It's more dynamic, I guess. There's more of a ups and downs and roller coaster aspect to the song. And when they're doing that, is when I'm I'm, I'm really into into the band. songs like press which you know are pretty much straight up just punk energy fast the whole way through really quick drum beats you know pretty much open chord guitars the whole time really loud you know there's a couple like that peppered in there that really probably go back more to the roots of the band but this seems like it might be a, a transition album um and i'm sort of familiar with the catalog would you say that that's true kim is this sort of like them becoming more melodic or am I kind of misreading it? Um, I'm trying to think. 
think I think the next record was. Gosh, what was the the next record? I think was the one that had question is how fast and all that. On the mouth was the next record. On the mouth. Okay, yeah. Um, which is pretty similar, um, to this one. I mean, I guess I kind of look at Super Chunk. A lot of it kind of blurs together for me, and I look at a lot Mm -hmm. of their early stuff, like this one, like No Pocky. Um, a lot of that all kind of runs together until they put out that here's where the strings come in and then everything kind of changed. So I sort of see them just as like two big clumps. Right. And that's like kind of right in the middle. That's like 95. So like yeah. probably the early like 1990 to 94 that there's four albums in there and they probably <laughs> all are pretty close to this then. I think so. Yeah. yeah. Is that the, and um, <clears throat> here's where the strings that's got hyper enough. Is that the single that was on that? album or was that on foolish um no i think you're correct i don't think that was on foolish that okay. was probably that, for the it's, the, it's uh the first song on that album yeah i remember that being the single we were playing at the radio station in the 90s at, at fal when we were when we were in college radio and i remember basically like hearing that one song thinking it was cool and then never checking them out <laughs> like basically <laughs> like We've got yeah. the one song, and I think all we maybe even had was just the single to start. And but I don't well, remember ever getting the album or like putting the whole album into rotation or anything. Well, that's an interesting point because I mean, in all ways, this is a band that Tim, you and I should be very much huge fans of, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, it it checks off all the boxes in terms of what we're looking for in music. We both were aware of the band. <laughs> we both admit to hearing bits and pieces here and there that we liked, but yet it's sort of taken us this long to get in to really get into them. And I, I gotta, you know, <clears throat> I don't think we'd be doing our job if we didn't try to figure out why is that? Is it just because there's so much material here to get through or, um, I don't know. I, I mean, cause sound wise, I mean, they don't, they don't vary that much. Right. It's not like one of those bands where one album sounds completely different from the other. They're all in the same basic ballpark right Um, i think part of the issue back in the 90s for me was i sort of put them in the same category at that time with pavement and guided by voices of mm. being sort of like the underground cool people listen to these bands and Mm -hmm. i didn't consider myself part of that i was still pretty much not all mainstream music but you know, I was buying Pearl Jam records. Not that that's yeah. a bad thing, but like the distance between Pearl Jam and Pavement is pretty far in the '90s. Now it doesn't seem so far away when you compare to like how wide the spectrum of music is that you can listen to. But because yeah. I mean, essentially they're just they're still rock bands. Yeah. You know, maybe one has a little bit more of a sarcastic attitude and plays their instruments a little sloppier, but they're still just rock bands essentially. And even in the 90s, that all stu- that was all going to get blown away by the time you hit the end of the 90s anyway. So, but, in the, but by mid-90s, I just didn't see the connection, I think, between what I was listening to in terms of rock and what these sort of indie underground darlings were doing. Yeah. I, I very rarely, I mean, like the Pixies were like one of the few bands that were like what the cool people were listening to that I actually got into in the 90s. And that was after they were gone. This is, I noticed this is a band that doesn't sample well um, in terms of if you just drop, you know, drop in on a track and just kind of skip around, you may not hear the most interesting part of the song. You may not quite get where the song's going if you kind of just drop in and out, or even if you just sample a song here and there. And it, even the first track on this record is a good example of that. It skips uh, steps one and three. Mm-hmm. If you just listen to the first, the intro and the first verse, and you only make it that far, you really don't quite get it until they get to the chorus. Then when they get to the chorus, all of a sudden you realize this band is totally different than what you were expecting.
the the beginning part of the song is pretty like it's typical it almost sounds like early everclear or something you know it's just just loud guitar power chords and you know all punk energy and it isn't until that chorus comes in do you kind of get the clever lyric and the the melody and the you know the the quality of the songwriting and uh you know that happens throughout this album you know there's moments where <clears throat> that are more special than others and I think this is pretty typical of their whole catalog where you're sort of even within a song, you know, there'll be moments where it's like, ah, eh, whatever. And then all of a sudden, you know, this great part happens. And if you don't hear that, you kind of don't get it. So I guess that's one of my, my theories of why I've uh, not gotten into this band as much as I probably sh- should is, is, is for that. It's just that it's hard to know, like, where should I start? And then, you know, you got to stick with it. You got to stick not only through a song, you got to stick through a couple songs to kind of for it all to gel in, in terms of uh, getting a taste for what they're doing. You know, I think that Skip Steps one and three is actually a good example that they don't necessarily place the most melodic or energetic part in the chorus. You know, the the verses are actually he's like yelling in the verses, but when he gets to the chorus, his voice actually kind of takes a step back in that song mm-hmm. and he it's delivered a little clearer so you can actually hear the line more distinctly yeah but they do that in a couple parts where they don't always like uh, seed toss is a good example in the uh second verse of that song it gets really melodic because they double the vocal which they don't do in the first yeah. and then while they're doubling the vocal there's a like a lead guitar comes in it's almost like sh- mm-hmm. shredding guitar, which is kind yeah. of the weird thing about this album is that every once in a while there um, there'll just be like these crazy leads that just come out of nowhere. Yeah. It's kind of cool because they're not a, it's not expected. I, when I think of like indie and and more sort of lo-fi or or that sort of genre, I don't think of them as being really solo driven or having those sort of like showy guitar leads. Yep. That's more present on the <clears throat> the new record, and that's why I'm saying it was it's sort of a gateway for me. Is that you know I found that that contrast that that duality interesting on the on the newest record, and and as I go back, you know it, it all makes sense to me now that I I hear it. And it's something they've always done. But you brought up the the doubling of the vocal. That's a huge uh, way that they uh, create dynamic, create a sense of um, a chorus or a hook. And they do it a lot, and they do it really, really well. Is that a double? Do you guys know? Is that a double they do in the studio, or do you actually have two singers in the band that, that do the double vocals? I think it's studio. Yeah, I think Mac's the only one that sings. Oh, okay. Huh. Yeah, he's the only one listed. Um, I can. So I'm curious. Then, I'm assuming, I'm assuming Kim, you saw them live at some yeah. point. Yeah, a lot of times. Did you see? Anybody else singing backup while they were playing live? Um, I think Laura might sing backup occasionally, but for the most part, it's just Mac singing. And then how how did they pull this off live? Because sometimes when a band is so much of their performance is based on the energy, they can get pretty loose and kind of messy live. Was this a band that was or is live as tight as they are? Oh yeah. Well, okay. yeah. Like I'm, um, I'm a drummer, and so I always gravitate towards like uh, if a band's really great live, then I always say that it's because of the drummer. <laughs> <And> <laughs> their drummer yeah. is, is amazing. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, like he's always just like totally solid. And the energy that you mentioned, yeah, that live definitely still they they still bring that. So yeah, they're they're great live. I have to see if they're touring. Uh, this would be a band I'd like to check out. I think they are. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm going to see them at a festival in a couple months, and I don't think they're touring like they used to tour, but I think they're you know doing a few shows from time to time. Is that the Hopscotch Music Festival in yes. Raleigh? Mm-hmm. Yep. Excellent. You know, something else that helps is that um, the previous versions of, of their stuff that I had heard was prior to the remastering, and on Spotify, all these early albums have been remastered and it helps a ton um i always found the the un, the 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 original recordings were really quiet and when you're listening you know now 
to stuff that's super loud, you know, way over compressed. And then something like this comes on. If you don't reach for the volume knob and crank it, you're really not experiencing experiencing it the you know the right way. So um, I, I found that 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 helped me uh, get into it quite a bit more, and they sound much better uh, the remastered versions. Yeah, and I think you can hear the you can hear the drums a lot better too because I think yeah. that was one thing about their records, especially the earlier ones, is yeah. the drums got so sucked up by all the guitar. Uh huh. And, um, yeah, you can hear everything a lot better on those yeah. remastered. And based on the new record, I know you know the drummers. Everybody in the band is great musicians, so I kind of knew that was there. But the previous attempts to get into the records, like you said, it, the, the drums would be buried and kind of, and the vocal would be buried. I mean, I love loud guitars, but you know, <laughs> um, being able to hear the drums always helps. And uh, if you're trying to pull out a melody, being able to hear the vocal helps as well. So, I was just looking. Uh at some lyrics. I'm wondering if you guys, there are some cool lines here and there. I think they write, or, or Mac writes some interesting stuff, but one of the songs that stuck out lyrically, I was just checking out, is um, Sidewalk, track 10. Mm. Oh, that's, um, my that's my favorite like lyrics on this record. Cool, and I, I want to read them so that people um, have an idea of what he's singing there. The lines are that really caught me were, well, you say you feel trapped. Yeah, I bought you a map, and I think you'll find in any, in any other sidewalk, it's the same old cracks. And then later he says, it's kind of like this place. I kind of like this place. I wish you'd like it with me. I was kind of thinking of the people that like always complain about wherever they are and always think that wherever where everybody else is, that's where they need to be. And that like, oh, you got to be in New York. You got to be in L.A. to, you know, to make it as a band or that's where the everything cool is happening. And I would imagine that being in North Carolina in the 90s, they were probably and being courted by major labels. They were probably thinking or hearing, oh, you know, if you're going to make it you got to be out in L.A. you got to be in New York. And there are probably people in, that they were around them saying that essentially, you know, we got to get out of the South and into these areas. Did you, do you guys kind of hear what I'm saying in terms of the lyrical interpretation or am I misinterpreting? No, I think that makes sense. I never thought of it that way, like of him sort of speaking to other bands but no, I think that totally makes sense. I've, I always it, that song really speaks to me because I remember in the '90s when I was getting so fed up with Wilmington, wanting to move away, and I remember listening to that song and kind of thinking, "Oh yeah, you know, wherever I go, I mean, it's gonna have the same crap. You know, I'm gonna have to deal with the same crap everywhere." So yeah. um, I just yeah, I th that one really spoke to me. But yeah, I think that makes that makes sense. Gee, what about you? Were there any lyrics that caught your ear? You know, I'm not a huge lyric guy, but there's enough like clever little lines here and there. I mean, even the song titles are interesting. I mean, I, I think we proved out just by listing off some of the album titles. Even the album titles are pretty unique. <laughs> yeah, uh, I like "Punch Me Harder." That's a particular <laughs> favorite of mine for the record, both in terms of title and song. Yeah, and that one's like crazy manic energy on that song.
there's a lot of smart stuff here and it's the kind of thing where i think the more you listen to it you know you can keep getting more and more out of it um it's definitely not a um you know this isn't a one or two listen band or your album um it's multiple listens to sort of dig in and <clears throat> find all those melodies and appreciate all those cool parts i mean even just production wise there's some really cool uh guitar tones on here that it's kind of funny that the, the tones they're using can get really ugly really fast and kind of become grating if not done really well. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, they did a good job um, capturing them here, and the, the remastering really helps. So when you crank them, you kind of get all the um, the texture that's there, and, and they do some pretty cool stuff there too. So it's, it's you know, pretty well produced, especially now with the remaster, like I said. And, um, you know, it's... It, it definitely sounds good when you crank it. Yeah, they do a good job of taking some... Some of the riffs are pretty basic. Yeah. But the way that they play them with the layering of the of the rhythm and the lead on top of each other, uh-huh. um, they do a good job of taking really basic riffs and making them interesting. And I think it helps that they don't play them that long. Like, a lot of times they have a different riff for the intro of the song than mm-hmm. for the actual first verse. Yeah, that's, that's what I mean by the 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 really well crafted sort of songs is that yeah they 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 uh, it seems like they know what their limitations are and they play with that a lot to make sure that you know they don't ever get monotonous or boring and um that's key for a band like this for me you know where you sort of things get a little bit angular and you know they they can be challenging there's like these really cool layer of of melody in there if if there's not a variety and there's not dynamics you know i can get lost in it and that's why i think i you know i mentioned earlier those are the songs i'm really drawn to with this band is is when they really you know they do that kind of thing where they have um you know different part for the intro and they kind of do a they'll do a break and then they'll you know the drums will drop out or one of the guitars will drop out i notice they do that quite a bit like Mm -hmm. they'll double the guitars and then one of the guitars will drop out and it'll come back again to kind of give it a dynamic and they just you know they're using all the the pieces they have available to them to you know a pretty full extent to create interesting songs from the beginning to the end and luckily none of them are long <laughs> yeah they they are i bless them i am so happy that they didn't do a seven minute long you know <laughs> stupid jam or like there's no mid-album like let's just putz around with distortion yeah. and and do like a noise track or anything like they they were like we're doing twelve songs we're banging them out there's no nonsense there's no BS and none of them are going to be too too long even though they, they get two points in songs where they're able to let loose a little bit I'm thinking of like the end of thirty extra there's like some guitar craziness that goes on at the end of mm-hmm. that song and there's some really cool harmonics that they do in the last song throwing things that they don't re- I mean it, it's kind of it's not really showy but I mean they're definitely like showing off that they can do some riffing mm-hmm. on that song, which is kind of cool. But they never, like, get indulgent with it. We're like, they could have easily turned the end of 30 Extra into a four-minute-long, you know, guitar wank-off, but they didn't go that way. Yeah. And I bless them for that. Because it would have, that would have pushed me over the edge. Well, if you if you got to do an album in 36 hours when you're out of town, <laughs> you, uh, mm-hmm. you get to business and... Yeah, there's not an opportunity to screw around and do studio tracks and stuff, which we've, you know, in the time we've been doing this, we found was pretty common in the 90s. Yeah, maybe because they didn't have a major label to just pump them with a bunch of money to <laughs> allow them to, you know, waste in some $500 an hour studio that they actually used their money wisely. And So you're saying if this was on Hollywood Records, it would have been 16 tracks and four of them would have been... One would have been like a voicemail, and another would have been like twelve <laughs> minutes of noise, and one of them featured a tabla. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, Kim, any last thoughts on this album before we get to our rating section? No, I mean you guys covered it pretty extensively. Um, I mean, it's, what I love about it, it's, it starts out so strong, and then I love like one of the best tracks I think is the last one. Mm-hmm. So I urge Definitely. people. You know, yeah, like if 
if they're really into it at first and then you know there are there's some songs kind of in the middle where it's like yeah but yeah just listen to it all the way through because it ends really strong too it's 34 minutes people you can give up 34 yeah. minutes to listen to the whole record <laughs> stay off your phone don't check your email put this put some headphones on and put this on and get yeah definitely the remastered versions on spotify if you're going to check it out because the the tin can drums of the non-remastered is not worth your time <laughs> jay jay last thoughts no yeah i would agree it's a it's a solid album from beginning to end i mean even the couple of songs that are you know maybe not as as strong still there's a place for them on the record and uh you know i think it's a really good taste of what this band's about and uh it's it's nice to have a band that has a lot of music and it's all pretty consistent and it's all f- sort of in the same realm, right? And mm-hmm. that's not very common. <laughs> there's a lot of bands that, you know, there's only one record that's really great or one record that sort of sounds like uh, what you associate with the band and then they go off in other directions and stuff. And this is a band that stayed pretty true to themselves. So, you know, I think it's a good representation of that. And I think it's just the sort of the start of uh, the amount of music that this band's made. So you're at a full album on this one? No EP or single? Yeah, I'm at a full album. I am as well. I, I, I highlighted, I think, 10 of the 12 songs as being stuff I would put into a mix mm-hmm. or into a, a you know playlist. So, And Kim, I'm assuming, also, you're, you're at an album rating. You're not going to downgrade oh, this to an EP? No, definitely. Yeah. Full Excellent. Album. So this is the tough part, recommending it to people who may not be familiar but are listening to current bands. Um, what sort of bands around today do you guys think people might be listening to that they might appreciate what Super Chunk is doing? Oh, my God. <laughs> um, I, I actually I had a couple, but Kim, what do you, do you got? Some? Yeah. Um, I'm thinking maybe like some of the like Death Cab stuff, Death Cab for Cutie maybe. Um, let me think. Who else? Well, that's interesting because they're mentioned on AllMusic.com as being an influence for Death, oh. for Death Cab, which makes oh. sense because I think Superchunk kind of falls into two uh, into two different like categories. They get like the the pop punk, but then they're also kind of responsible in some ways for some of the emo ish punk from the '90s and, and the early 2000s. And I think Death Cab was sort of in there. I've always thought of Death Cab as being a lot quieter mm-hmm. than, say, like Saves the Day or Get Up Kids yeah. or some of those bands. Oh, and you know who, like, actually, I said, I mentioned Super Chunk was my gateway. But my gateway to Super Chunk actually was, was Green Day, actually. So, I mean, I think if you don't know who Super Chunk is, you probably know who Green Day is. And maybe not, maybe not the most recent Green Day stuff, but their earlier stuff i think is pretty similar i would agree with that i had a couple i i came with this from two different approaches uh one was sort of the more noisier side of super chunk and i think if you're into bands such as times new viking or waves or titus andronicus you might yeah dig some of this and then also there's, I think there's been a little bit of a resurgent in resurgence in sort of just the straight up rock, and I'm thinking of like the Gaslight Anthem, hmm. um, also Japanadroids, uh, Hold Steady, and Two Cow Garage were another a couple other bands that I thought of. That if you hmm. like those bands, you might be able to make the leap over to Super Chunk. I don't think it's that far, especially Japanadroids. I feel like is really close. They're just missing a bass player, really. Yeah, I, those are good. Those are good ones. I, I was sort of uh, trying to think of bands like that. I wasn't quite sure if um, Gaslight would be. I, I think you're. I think you would be right. I think um, they're a little bit. I, I just think of so much of Springsteen whenever I hear them, which mm-hmm. is fine. But just, but I, you know, just in terms of melding melody with you know that energy and sort of straight up you know format in terms of the guitars and stuff and. Even lyrically, like what the band's singing about and stuff, I, th- I think it would be, it would be a pretty natural transition. Cool. That was it. I couldn't think of any more, but I think that gives everybody a pretty good indication of the sound. Uh, also, probably all the music that they heard us play, also a good indication of the sound. So, 
Yeah, there's not a lot of new bands doing this kind of thing, unfortunately. Yeah. Not as earnest. I think the word that I would use I, is earnest. Yeah, I was thinking that earlier, too. That's, that's why I mentioned Death Cab. Yeah. I think now it's, it's coded in either a little bit of, not sarcasm, but just being a little bit disconnected. Um, when I think of a band like Times New Viking or Waves, I don't think of them as being very emotionally uh, connected. Yeah, they seem to be. It's 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 an attitude of being disconnected from what you're doing. Like I'm I'm here and I'm playing a guitar and I'm making a lot of noise, but where's the emotional core of that? Yeah. I don't want you to think that I actually care because then if you don't like me, then my feelings would be hurt. Right, exactly. <laughs> so, someone would pretend like I really don't care if you like me or you don't like me. That's more what those bands are about. Yeah, that's pretty much it. You nailed it. <laughs> so, <clears throat> oh, that's so cynical. Oh, it is. <laughs> All right. Well, we're approaching the hour mark, which is a good time for us to start wrapping up. I want to mention to everybody that's listened that if you like what you heard, please stop by our iTunes page. Drop us a note. Say something like, good job. Well done. Something along those lines. And leave a couple stars, and we will greatly appreciate it. And we'll mention you on the show. Should mention, I don't think we've we've got a new uh, formatted uh, or new um, format for comments. We're using Discus now. It's really simple to use. If you have a Facebook or a, a Facebook page or a Twitter account or any sort of social media account, you can pretty much log in through that. So you don't have to go about setting up a account on blog or anything such as that. So uh, we need to thank our special guest who suggested we check out No Pocky for Kitty, or who I'm going to refer to as um, No Candy for Kittens, this album we referred to. <laughs> uh, Kim, thank you so much for joining us. You're so welcome. Thanks for having me. And you can check out Kim's podcast. This is the sound. Now, did that, I got to ask, did that come from the Juliana Hatfield? Yeah, lyric? yeah, it did actually. I like that song a lot. We, we, Jen and I both are fans of that like era of like girl music, also. Like Magna Pop and. Mm-hmm. and uh, yep, that's what we've yeah. reviewed uh, several of those records. Yeah, I know. Yeah. If you want to berate Jay for his. Uh, Juliana Hatfield review. You can go oh, ahead right now. Oh, stop! <laughs> oh, I didn't know you had. I'll have to listen. I did. I haven't heard that one yet. I'll have to find it. Yeah, we did. We uh, we covered a Juliana Hatfield album. Which Jay's, one? It's the Juliana Hatfield three album. Okay. It's, yeah, with my sister on it and all that. Yep. Yep. This yep. is the yeah. This is the sound that's on that one. I think I it's, love that record. <laughs> I'm, glad, I'm glad. I'm glad you didn't listen to our review before the. This <laughs> <laughs> no, I wasn't. I wasn't that harsh. No, I'm. I'm. I'm blowing it out of proportion. <laughs> I did get an angry um, written letter from Juliana Hatfield afterwards, saying that <laughs> we hurt her feelings. But no, I wish. I would. <laughs> wow. I would appreciate some angry mail, but we didn't get any. I did give her a hard time in the the history of the band, which uh, I think the story was that she wanted. She was tired of being famous or something, or couldn't stand the the pressure of being famous and i just found that funny in hindsight considering you know i, I mean this wasn't like <laughs> this album was was good and sold some records but I, I don't think she was like michael jackson or anything right so i give her a hard time about that but other than that i like some stuff about kim thank you once again yeah for joining us everybody please check out this is the sound podcast and jay thanks for coming on the show once again doing your doing your 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 duty which is to (laughs) show up every week and discuss albums with me and uh yeah that's it we'll be back next week with another episode of dig me out Want to leave feedback? Join the conversation at digmeoutpodcast.com for links to our Facebook page and Twitter feed. While you're there, support the podcast by visiting our donation and merchandise pages. And thanks for listening. And